Hello and welcome to Medium Cool, a movie podcast. I'm your host, Austin Glidden, and hey, you can come hang out with us on social media uh, at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. That's facebook.com backslash Medium Cool Pod. You can search Medium Cool Pod on Instagram, we'll pop up, and at Medium Cool Pod on Twitter. You can also email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com and it'll get straight to me. You can find me on Twitter under Austin Glidden. Um, if you want to bother Joe for some reason, uh, Joe Shearer Nine on Twitter. You know you can find us. That's the whole point. You can find us. Find us on Letterbox. The whole thing. Okay. Uh, also, if you would be so kind, please follow or or subscribe to us wherever you're listening to this now. Um, if you like the show or don't, whatever you know, whatever you feel most comfortable with, uh, please leave us a rating uh, or even better, a review. It really does help creators, and it would help us out a lot. Now, today's episode, we're going to be talking about my choice for this week. Last week, uh, Joe chose Chef, um, the John Favreau film. Really great. Uh, but this week, I chose my favorite comedy of all time, which is Woody Allen's Annie Hall. Uh, but, you know, we, there's also an HBO like mini docuseries called Alan V. Farrow that came out and uh, has really caused a lot of, you know, ruckus around Woody Allen uh, because of the accusations uh, by his daughter, his adopted daughter, uh, of uh, uh, basically sexual assault issues. Um, I felt like it was really important to address this idea um, of... Basically, can you separate the art from the artist? Can you appreciate a film by, like, uh, you know, uh, a, a fucking human piece of excrement? You know what I mean? <laughs> um, and and so I, I basically I, I have instead of doing kind of a solo review of something, I went ahead and just uh, kind of am providing a verbal essay of sorts about my views uh, on. Uh, separating the art from the artist, you know, it, it, can can you do it? Is it uh, is it should you do it? So on. Uh, so hopefully you appreciate that. And um, after that, we're going to talk about Annie Hall, and and uh, I'll give you. We'll tie it into that. We'll get Joe's thoughts on the whole thing, and and uh, yeah, that's what we plan to do. So please stay tuned. I'm going to go ahead and jump over to my thoughts on uh, separating the art from the artist, so we can get this thing moving. So hopefully you enjoy. And uh, yeah, stick around with us. In lieu of the HBO docuseries Allen vs. Pharaoh, and seeing as how you know my favorite comedy of all time is Woody Allen's Annie Hall from 1977, the movie I've chosen to discuss today long form, I thought it was really important to discuss the idea of separating the art from the artist. Is it possible? Should you do it? Why or why not? This is a big can of worms that I'm going to try my best to be thorough about while also trying to keep it concise so I can meet up with Joe and we can discuss it further. So if you have any comments, questions, or concerns, please feel free to reach out and direct message me on social media or email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com, and I'd be happy to respond to respectful, sincere responses to this content. Now, Alan V. Farrow is a four-part miniseries by Kirby Dick and Amy Ziering, and it explores the allegation uh, of sexual abuse made against Woody Allen in 1992. The allegation by his adopted daughter, Dylan Farrow, states that he molested her when she was seven years old. The miniseries follows the custody battle between Allen and his former partner, Mia Farrow. His marriage to her adopted daughter, Sunyi Previn, who was 21 years old at the time, but 35 years younger than Allen, 
and the events of the years that followed the controversial incident. There are many camps that see this as a he-said-she-said situation, therefore disregarding it altogether. Others have boycotted Allen's films and canceled him. There are people on all sides of this debate. Now, none of the following information is meant to justify or nullify any of the prior information. Let that be clear. Woody Allen is a piece of shit, and I support and believe Dylan Farrow despite there being no hard evidence. But, you know, he was also factually one of Hollywood's leading comedians. For 1977, his film Annie Hall won the Academy Award for Best Picture, beating the blockbuster behemoth Star Wars. It also swept the Best Actress in a Leading Role, Best Director, and Best Screenplay categories, uh, not to mention the 26 or so other awards it won and the eight nominations. Now, Alan's films you know, ruled the late 70s through the early 90s, sometimes making more than one film per year, totaling 17 films between 1977 and 1992. The era I would classify as his best, personally, with few exceptions. Now, as an artist, he was prolific, creative, unique, and in my opinion, hilarious. Now, his films have, you know, have a way of finding truths uh, that we often overlook, to be honest. And quite frankly, his films taught me a lot about myself as I considered his deeper messages. All that said, how can I rectify this cognitive dissonance in my brain? His art is incredibly important, and they're some of my favorite films. But Woody Allen, the man, as I said before, is a piece of shit. So let's look at a few other examples of pieces of shit, just for fun. Johnny Depp was accused of domestic violence by his then-wife, Amber Heard. Kevin Spacey was accused of attempted sexual assault of a teenage boy. One of the undeniably great filmmakers of all time, Charlie Chaplin, liked young women, sometimes as young as 16. Bill Cosby has his many assault charges. Acclaimed filmmaker and unequivocal human diarrhea puddle, Roman Polanski, fled America during his criminal trial after he committed sexual assault. And not just one account, he had multiple charges. So remember, diarrhea puddle. Lenny Riefenstahl literally invented camera techniques we still use today, and she was working back in the 1930s, changing film as we knew it then, but unfortunately she used her talents as a filmmaker to celebrate Hitler's regime by creating Nazi propaganda like Triumph of the Will in 1935. Now before Lenny, D.W. Griffith defended prejudices of white Southerners in Birth of a Nation made in 1915, creating possibly one of the most important films in history, but also depicting the KKK as heroes against the dreaded black savages portrayed in blackface by white actors for the record. Outside of film, famous Italian painter Caravaggio was a pimp and a murderer. Picasso was an infamous misogynist. Writer T.S. Eliot was alleged uh, an anti-Semite, though this has been academically contested but not proven otherwise. Composer Richard Wagner was an anti-Semite too, to a maniacal degree. J.K. Rowling wrote one of the greatest YA novel series ever created in Harry Potter, but she is a transphobic monster. Chris Benoit was one of the greatest professional wrestlers in history, and during the last weekend of his life in 2007, he killed his wife and child, then committed suicide. Famous musician Chuck Berry was fucking around with a 14-year-old. Elvis Presley had romantic flings with underage girls. Uh, Aerosmith frontman Steven Tyler had his weird legal guardian romantic relationship thing with an underage girl. Go check that out. It's weird. 
R. Kelly, it's just R. Kelly shit, whatever. John Lennon was a criminally neglectful father to his firstborn and a beater of women by his own admission. Michael Jackson and his child abuse, David Bowie and his sexual misconduct. There are so many more one could name, but you get the idea. There are a lot of people one might consider a genius as an artist, but man, as a person, they just suck. And that's an understatement. But if one asks the specific question, can you separate the art from the artist? The answer is factually, yes. But do you want to? Now I'll get to that later. Now, why am I so certain in our ability to separate the two? Because academics have been doing it through you know, the beginning of the 21st century to now. It's called new criticism. And in the early 1920s, if I remember correctly, it was seen as a pretty radical and progressive way of thinking. Critics would essentially disregard the creators of the text, uh, a text being anything that conveys a set of meanings to the person who examines it, such as movies, books, poetry, music, etc. And these critics would focus on said text exclusively, attempting to find what meaning they could out of the actual final product presented to them, rather than the artist's intentions, which may not come through effectively. So this means if you watch Roman Polanski's Chinatown from 1974 as an exclusive text, you might see its cynical worldview surrounding the dishonesty of authority figures, the corruption of the American dream, or the helplessness of common people in the face of evil, and so on. Polanski's personal life, you know, as a bona fide dickbag, does not change these aspects of his art. One does not have to toss the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. But if you want to, or if it's too hard for you to reach the point of appreciation for these artists, I understand your choice. To be fully transparent, personally, I do find it a little frustrating when people can't see the power of certain art due to the artist's flaws. That's only due to me wanting people to have these truly moving and changing experiences and value the aspects of these works that really matter, not the person behind them. But I also have an academic brain that functions the way it does. And some people don't because we have different brains and that's okay. But one may be able to watch Woody Allen's The Purple Rose of Cairo because Allen himself is not acting in the film. Uh, but to watch something like Manhattan would send the people running away because not only is he the lead actor, but you know his character is also dating a 17-year-old, which is weird to say the least, especially seeing his past. I get it. One misunderstanding some folks come to is some people think that, you know, wanting to separate the artist from the artist only because one might like the art created by the artist, but they find the artist problematic. It's an easy way, for example, to, you know, still enjoy the things you like while feeling better about yourself for condemning the artist. Or in some other cases, forgetting about the artist altogether, which I find irresponsible and disrespectful personally. Now, this ultimately leads to people doing this for art that they like, but not really doing it for art that they don't. Now, I disagree with this for the most part, um, though I don't think everyone's going to employ this level of thought, so it may be true for some, but I don't think it's a universal truth. This is why. You know, uh, half the people that I mentioned earlier that were problematic figures, I'm not a particular fan of, but it doesn't mean that their art does not have a firm place in history, and that it's allowed to be explored and appreciated. I think this is an unfair defense, though I can see how it could apply to some people, like I mentioned. The other portion of this argument is that, you know, you know, maybe if you ideologically align with a non-problematic figure, 
you're less likely to separate the art from that artist rather than an artist you find problematic. Now, again, I disagree here as this being a universal statement, though it could be true for some. Last year, American Utopia came out, created by Talking Heads frontman David Byrne. Now, I like Byrne. He rules. But I still watched the film without him in mind. One is fully capable of both connecting ideologically and divorcing the art from the artist. Now, whether one takes that approach uh, or not can certainly be a factor. I totally get that. But to say that it's not the case altogether is an unfair statement. Also, I do not believe that by consuming one's art, you are condoning the problems in their personal life or of their character. So I'm sure, you know, often when people say separate the artist from the art, they're really advocating for you not to think about the person behind the art. And I also find that problematic. You should be thinking about that. You can do both. That's okay, and it's possible. It's not like I stopped thinking about the walking mound of dog vomit, Roman Polanski, when I watched Rosemary's Baby. But I don't have a problem differentiating him from the text. But again, not everyone is willing to go there, and that's okay too. There's a video by the YouTube creators Council of Geeks, and though I don't agree with you know some of the universal statements that they make here, uh, here's a summary of one of their statements. And to clarify, this is not an attack on them at all. I really appreciate their perspective, but I do think that they worded this uh, pretty well. So here we go. Here's one of their statements. Art does not exist in a vacuum. Art does not just happen. Someone creates it. Harry Potter is not just a story that existed somewhere in the universe and was channeled through J.K. Rowling. Like, it could have been channeled through any vessel, but it just so happened to be channeled through her. Though no one believes this, it's how art can be treated. One argument is that, you know, treating art this way also treats it like it doesn't have a source or meaning. As if it doesn't have influence and background, good features and bad, that are instilled in it from the person who created it. Now... Uh, that's the end of kind of their idea. And, and I, I totally get that. You know, uh, I understand that an artist's beliefs, attitudes, and values, or their BAVs, as some of you out there listening will be excited for me to bring this up because they talk about it all the times. But I understand that an artist's beliefs, attitudes, and values are the foundation for which their art is formed. None of us can think outside of the boundaries set by our BAVs unless our BAVs are changed. And they can change and evolve over time because of our experiences, our backgrounds, etc. But just because J.K. Rowling is, a tra- is transphobic does not automatically mean Harry Potter books are transphobic. Now, Council of Geeks did not make that statement. I am speaking outside of that now to clarify. Because J.K. Rowling is transphobic does not mean Harry Potter is. Just because T.S. Eliot is allegedly anti-Semitic does not inherently mean his works are anti-Semitic, but it also doesn't mean it isn't either, because you know that's kind of the point here, the entire point of what I'm saying. There are other reasons not to consume artists' art, but these are not those reasons, I would argue. For example, if someone identifies as a homosexual, does that mean all of their work is gay? I just can't go there. I can't go to that extent. There are two other aspects to discuss, you know, tying into what I consider better reasons, supporting the artist financially and the moral aversion to consuming their creations. As for the morality stance, that's entirely your choice. If you do not feel comfortable watching a Woody Allen film or listening to Michael Jackson's thriller, 
That is entirely your choice. And if you can't see the text for what it is because of those artists, then there's no reason for you to consume it because you're not going to get the thing out of it. You know, so don't. that's nothing to be ashamed of. If you can't go there then and you don't feel comfortable doing so, then don't. I don't want you to be challenged in that way. There are much better ways to be challenged with art than that. Now, I may not relate to that decision, but I understand it. Now, as for financial contributions, this gets tricky because it's something you'd have to research. For studio pictures, directors generally get paid like any other employee. They do the job, they get money. It's not based on box office. So they make, you know, tens of thousands of dollars, maybe even seven figures in some cases. But, you know, you watching the film often does not end up giving the artist money. Now, uh, they've been paid. However, giving money to the studio that employed them can be a problem to some as well. And that makes sense, too. Uh, Like Kevin Spacey, who was a moneymaker for some studios, public opinion brought that to a halt, showing that even the studio... Uh, that is making money for some from someone, you know, they can bend to public will. So, you know, making sure that we stand up against that kind of behavior can and has in history uh, had fruitful results. Now, it gets tricky when the director is also a producer or holds another position that might earn them money from the profits. That, I understand, could put money in the artist's pockets, and it's a tricky thing. I also understand that all these examples are related to filmmaking. Authors like J.K. Rowling became a billionaire off of her Harry Potter book series. You know, this is why your personal convictions and research is vitally important to find where you fit into this debate. But take, for example, you know, when Woody Allen dies and none of the money made on his films is going to him, what then? Where do we stand when the creator is deceased? I have no qualms consuming art created by a deceased artist, uh, provided there is something meaningful to explore, and that's important. But yeah, I don't have an issue with that. Now, there's a concept called death of the artist, not to be mistaken uh, for literal death of the artist. It's also called death of the author. But, you know, this is a theory that basically aligns with new criticism ideals. It's a concept from the mid-20th century literary criticism, and it holds that, you know, an artist's intentions and biographical facts, so the artist's politics, religion, etc., should hold no special weight in determining an interpretation of their writing. So this almost exclusively ties to interpretation. This does not account for, you know, an artist profiting off of your consumption. Uh, Again, that would have to take research and your personal convictions. But death of the artist or death of the author is a criticism tool to help see art beyond its problematic creators. If it's something you want to do, certainly look into it. Death of the artist and separating the art from the artist are not the same thing, but in the same ballpark. And it's a good place to start. To wrap this up, I study and critique film. And it's very important to me to understand all film, not just some. So I watch everything in order to broaden my horizon all the while watching it within the context of the art being a text. It doesn't mean that there aren't times where I consider the artist, but I always start with the film as a text. If you are a critic, film history buff, academic, etc., I can't encourage you enough to explore these approaches to art that allow you to look past the artist, not to dismiss the artist's faults, not to ignore their sins, but to shelve them temporarily so you can get to the core of their art. 
Now, some terrible people have created art that has changed my life. Their personal history does not inherently diminish their artistic proficiency. However, if you are just a moviegoer, someone who doesn't spend much time looking into movies this way or doesn't have much stock in having a deep knowledge of cinema, you have no reason to push yourself into this territory unless you want to challenge yourself in that way. For me, it's a fruitful perspective, but for you, maybe not so much. But I also want to clarify, it's also okay to consider the artist in regards to their art too. Sometimes that's helpful when considering, for example, film history. The human banana fart, Roman Polanski, was still dealing with the loss of Sharon Tate after she was murdered by the Manson family. His films became more cynical around that time. There was a sadness and a darkness to them, like in Chinatown. You do not always have to separate these things, but you can. And in the case of that example, Chinatown still works without the context of Polanski's experiences. The important thing to take away from this is that someone's personal life may tarnish their art for you. That's okay. And I challenge you to grapple with that and find your truth regarding whether you need that in your life or not, or whether you can still keep it but it just loses some meaning. My argument is not to stop consuming or to continue. My argument is I do not believe there is one right way to navigate this. And to say there is is naive in my view. Follow your convictions, follow your moral compass, and see where it takes you. But never stop thinking critically. It will help guide you too. So, should one separate the art from the artist? The conclusion is, if you're studying film, I believe you certainly should, and I'm a firm believer in that. But if not, it really falls into your convictions. That said, we will be covering movies by and with problematic artists from time to time here on the show, and please understand, we do not condone their actions, but rather, we look at the text. That's what we'll be doing today with Annie Hall. But let's see what Joe thinks about all this. All right, Joe, uh, that was me, your good old host, Austin Glidden, talking about, uh, you know, my thoughts on separating the art from the artist. Um, it is a really, it's a tricky deal. Uh, also, depending on kind of who you are, I think uh, it can be really tricky. But Joe, I'd love for you to tell uh, me, because I haven't talked to you about this before, me and the listeners, what are your thoughts on separating the art from the artist when it comes to film? Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it, it can be difficult. Um, it, it's boy, you know, it, it's really rough when you get, you know, someone high profile, someone that you really love that you've really followed their work for a while. Um, and then you hear them accused of, of terrible things, you know, of doing terrible things and, or, you know, even convicted of crimes, you know, there's, you know, there's so many stories, you know, you, you know, you mentioned a lot of them, um, there's, you know, there's people like OJ Simpson, you know, who were just beloved figures, you know, who now, you know, today are obviously are looked at in a much different light. Yeah. Um, but when it comes to, to, you know, to people who, you know, who are filmmakers whose work kind of lasts and who had been considered some of the greats, you know, like, like Woody Allen, you know, it's, it, you know, it can be tough. It can be tough to when they're, especially in front of the camera. You know, you, you mentioned that, um, you know, it's easier, maybe easier to watch a Roman Polanski movie or, you know, even one of some of the Woody Allen movies that he doesn't appear in because he's not, you know, they're not there. You're not seeing their face. You're not yeah. hearing them actually speak. So sometimes that makes it a little bit easier, but it's not, 
yeah, it's it's just tricky, and it I think it takes a a certain kind of person to be able to actually do that, to actually take that and and say, you know, that person may be terrible, but you know, I'm going to just accept what they, you know, what they've given, what, you know, this, this art, this bit of art, I'm just going to take it at face value and I'm not going to, to, um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm going to accept it for what it is and not assign the things that this person did outside or, you know, externally to this, um, you know, I'm not going to hang it on this movie. Um, there, you know, there's, there's moments in this movie too that, you know, if you look at him, you could, it, it kind of, it, it kind of pulled me out. There's, he, you know, he mentions child molesters a couple of times in the, you know, in this movie, there's a scene where he's in school, uh, like, you know, the, the scene toward the beginning where he's, in, yeah. he's actually sitting in school, like in that little, like that in, in his mind scene. Um, obviously there's a bunch of those in this film, but um, there's a lot of that kind of stuff that just kind of pulls you out just a little bit. Um, and it's kind of it's it's a shame and it's kind of hard to watch sometimes in that context without being able to think of that kind of thing but i you know i don't know I, and, I, and i don't know what the merits are i you know that's just things i just i just don't know what's right um because you know in a lot of ways film is talking about big philosophical issues or big moral issues and and it's tough to you know if the the person who is giving those lessons, who's discussing those things, is a lunatic or a pedophile or something like that. Sometimes it's hard to, you know, it could be rightfully hard maybe to separate it. But at the same time, maybe this art has something to offer someone, has something that, you know, that is still worth listening to or worth, you know, worth hearing. And so I don't know, it's, it's, it's difficult for me. I can generally do it um, you know, I've watched a couple of Roman Polanski's movies um, more recently. Um, I did enjoy a couple of um, Woody Allen's movies. You know, Midnight in Paris is one that that I remember really enjoying. Um, you know, that came out. You know, more in the in the more recent years, after you know after a lot of this stuff had come out, and you know the the Dylan Farrow stuff obviously hadn't come out around that time. But yeah. Uh, but you know, there's there's a lot that I think can be still gleaned, and there's still to still value in some of some of his stuff if you can if you can do that and if you can't uh, you know I don't think there's anything wrong with that you know I don't think it means there's something wrong with you or that you're you know somehow less than I I think it's you know and, and by the same token I think if you do it, it's you know it, it doesn't mean you're necessarily like enabling a you know a criminal or a child molester or whatever you you know however you want to say it um I, I think it's a I think it's a, a concerted effort to um, focus on other things than that, and um, I, I think that's I think that's fine in the right context, you know, yeah. uh, especially yeah. a historical one. Um, trying to watch a movie like this, you know, through the through the lens of its time is I think is you know it's okay, um, you know, just like doing something like watching the Cosby Show. Again, these are a lot of, a lot of these people you've mentioned. Uh, you know, watching the Cosby Show. Can you not enjoy the Cosby Show anymore? I don't, you know, I don't know. Like I haven't watched it for years and years, but I, yeah. you know, I don't know. Well, I so. think, you know, so that's kind of an interesting point to bring up. Uh, I think different people get different um, kind of categories, I guess, of what someone is able to watch. We talked about Jeffrey Jones. 
I had no idea he did the weird shit he did until you told me when we were talking about like Ferris Bueller or something or whatever we were talking about. I don't even remember which movie, but he was in it. And I looked it up. I'm like, oh shit, this dude has like kitty porn on his butt. (laughs) Like that's freaking crazy. But like, you know, I don't, I never hear people talk about Beetlejuice in any kind of a problematic light. Do you get what I mean? Or like, so it's like some people. I think people just don't know Jeffrey Jones. I mean, I didn't even know. I bet a lot of people just didn't pay attention and don't know that he did this weird shit. And if they did, he's so, I feel like, divorced from stardom at this point that I feel like people would just, like, overlook it or something. I don't know. And then you get people like the Cosby show thing where that has to just bomb now, right? Like, I don't imagine any, because that was so high profile. But I think the biggest thing, though, is Jeffrey Jones plays an asshole a lot of times. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. So some people are like, yeah, he's a fucking dick, you know, and people don't care as much. Now, I'm, I'm generalizing, of course, and I don't have any... This is anecdotal. I don't have any evidence in front of me, right? Sure. But sure. then you get Bill Cosby. What did he build himself on? He built himself on wholesome comedy, right? Mm-hmm. And in yeah. the 80s with the Cosby show, like my stepmom, when this happened, she couldn't believe it. She was trying so yeah. hard to be in denial about it. And Sabrina, I love you, but I remember we, she and I were talking about it, and she was like, no, I just can't believe it. And I'm like, the only reason you can't believe it is because you love him. And she's like, but he taught yeah. me, like, the morals of my life. Like, I learned yeah. Yeah. morality through this immoral person, right? Yes. Um, and that's a hard thing to reckon with, right? Some people, yeah. like, if, you know, I, I, I did a lot of research before, start, before doing, uh, kind of writing out and doing my the segment before this you know and um a big thing i found was that like you see a lot of evidence of people talking about this saying like the biggest problem with others is if they like the person it's harder for them to separate the art from the artist because they like this person so it's almost intrinsically tied right whereas if they don't like the person then you know they uh, they do separate the air, and and that's that's just some people would argue you that's how it just is, and when 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 I watch it, it's like, dude, I I love Quentin Tarantino movies, but like I can watch something, and easily rip into it just because I like it doesn't mean like I can sure. definitely watch something uh, as you know separating the art from the artist. Now the thing with Woody Allen and and. You called back to my segment, but also you you touched on it. I think it would be a lot more difficult for people to watch something like Manhattan, where he's dating a 17-year-old in the movie, and he's the lead guy, okay? So that's automatically extra weird, right? Because of you know everything that's happened, especially. I mean, it's already weird, but especially because of what's happened. And uh, like you could watch that, but watching the Purple Rose of Cairo, for example, or Radio Days, or anything that doesn't have Woody Allen in it would be a whole lot easier for some people. Midnight in Paris, you brought up from 2011. Um, even yeah. 2013, I think it was, with uh, Blue Jasmine, another one, which has Louis C.K. in it. So then that gets another weird, <laughs> you know, like depending on how people feel about the Louis C.K. thing. So it's just, man, it, it's it's tricky. And, and I really do stand by my statements in this segment where I think people like you and me, I think it is our obligation and duty to do this work because we are critiquing film. We are ultimately because of that studying film indirectly or intentionally. And yeah. I think it's incredibly important. 
people like my wife or anyone else who watches films for entertainment, if that's their goal, I understand why you might not be entertained because you can't see past the opaque mask of child molester that is perpetually placed on Woody Allen's face. Me, watching Annie Hall, I didn't have a problem doing it. However, afterwards, I looked at the film in two different lights. I looked at it as a text, as a piece of art, right? And I also looked at it as, okay, so like there is a lot of weird shit in here, like you brought up, because he talks about yeah. you know pedophiles and he talks about all this weird yeah. shit. And I was like, man, that's so interesting that that's also in here. And then I can also look at it through the lens of Woody Allen as well. I don't sure. think art is supposed to be exclusively seen through an artist's lens. Uh, that again, that's the whole point of new criticism. That is the idea of the uh, death of the author, or death of the artist uh, mentality uh, that's been created and around for decades. And so it's just like really interesting to just see how people react to some of these things. I am Team Pharaoh all the way, by the way. So like I am, I am by no means, you know, going to uh, favor Woody Allen in this whole thing. Yeah. The tricky thing, though, uh, for some people. You know, why there are two sides to this argument, because there are Woody Allen like defenders, hardcore. And then there are, of course, I'm sure largely um, Dylan Farrow side of things like supporters. That's what I'm looking for. Um, But like, you know, when I look at situations like this, because some people don't want him to be able to make movies. You know what I mean? And and that's fine. Stop making movies. Like, I don't care. (laughs) I haven't seen a film of his for the last three years. So, you know, I'm not against it, but I don't really have. If we're not reviewing it on here or we're not doing something, I don't really have a reason to watch it. And so um, unless I I, I told a buddy of mine, the only way I'll probably watch like Rifkin's Festival, which came out last year, is if I'm trying to complete his filmography, you know, (laughs) and I might do like when he dies, I'll probably do that because I only have like seven movies and I've seen all of his stuff, you know. So um, but it's I already lost my train of thought. I got I got way off on there. Um, what was I just saying? Do you remember what I sang, Joe? I don't know. It God damn it. <laughs> the, the point is this. The point is this. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, 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 it what, what upsets me the most, I just remembered. It's yeah. good that I stalled with vocal fillers there. Here, yeah. here, here's, here's the key. Him not making movies doesn't matter to me anymore. Uh-huh. But, like... There are two parties to this because there is no indicting evidence against him. Again, I'm yeah. Team Pharaoh here. I believe totally, oh. and let's see what happens here. But this, a lot of these situations are really tricky like that because if there was proof, he'd be in prison. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> like, there, it, yeah. it, it, it is he said, she said. Right? Now, I sure. believe, again, Dylan Pharaoh. But it's just a really tricky thing, which almost makes it worse because it's almost like a person got away with something terrible. You know what I mean? Yes. And and Plansky's yeah. the same way. Like that dude got convicted. And, you know, and, nice. and he ran away. Like, what an admission of guilt, you know. Um, and so I don't know, man. I just I'm kind of rambling now. The point is this. I, I I it's always bothered me. It's been kind of like mildly frustrating for me when people can't do the work, right? Because something like Annie Hall, which we'll get into in a minute, you know, that like that movie in many ways really made me 
think differently about relationships when I saw it the first time. And in many ways, like changed my life. You know? <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, because, you know, when I went through, I remember I went through, um, I've told you guys that uh, my current wife, Amanda and I, uh, we dated like 15 years ago or whatever. And, uh, or longer than that, holy shit. But anyways, we, we dated, you know, back in the in 2003, and then we broke up. And I remember I saw Annie Hall, uh, I don't know if it was the first time or not, but I saw Annie Hall after we broke up. And I remember, like, just how truthful it was to me. You yeah. know, I mean, just like, I'm when I do the intro to the movie, I'll come back to this because there is a moment that I'm going, I have a quote in it from the end of the film, actually, uh, that really speaks a lot of truth to me and really like helped me rethink and reprogram relationships in my mind in yeah, order to yeah. like kind of get through like kind of the first really heavy breakup I'd ever went through. And then, you know, like I was engaged to the next person that I was with in like 2005. And then after yeah. after we broke up in 2007 and we called off the the marriage or whatever. And uh what what did who did I turn to? I turned to Annie Hall and movies like that. I mean, it was like Annie yeah. Hall, uh High Fidelity, you know, like shit like that where it's like it's it's not just about people getting together in the end, it's about the act of romance and and what living with a life partner is. And so yeah. I say all that to say, you know, it would make me I get frustrated with people sometimes because it's like, man, like I want you to experience this thing because it like changed me. Like this is an example of art that changed me. But some sure. people can't get past seeing his big, dumb, stupid, you know, right. black rimmed glasses face. And yeah. you know what I mean? And so, Absolutely. I, but I get it. Like I, I, I again, I, I don't, uh, I don't give people shit if they can't do it. Um, yeah. The only time I give people shit if they can't do it are people who are trying to study film or be critics. It's like that's kind of part of your job now. Like you need yeah. – I, I brought up Chaplin, right? Chaplin back in the 20s and 30s and stuff, uh, he was really into young women, okay? I can't remember how young – I, I want to say 16 was the youngest, but I can't remember. And it was one of those weird situations where like parents gave permission to it. and Like it was this whole thing, right? And it's just weird. And I'm pretty sure that when he died, which I think was like in the 70s or something, when he died, his wife was like way younger than him, if I remember correctly. Yeah. I'd have to look into the details. I don't remember every detail anymore. But, uh, you know, his films, which we will watch a Chaplin film at some point on here. That's just, sure. that will happen because he's just one of my all-time favorites. But, you know... uh, it's just interesting that he is so highly regarded that people give out like Chaplin awards and shit. Yeah. But like he he had some like gross habits. Dude, even Hitchcock was fucking weird about some shit. Do you know those stories yeah. about Hitchcock with like Tippy Hedren and like different like leading ladies and he was like kind of obsessive yeah. and weird about it? Like where's yeah. the line? And and again, this sounds like I'm defending someone. I'm not. Like I'm fully in support of how people feel about it and what they want to do about it. It's just like, I guess my brain just doesn't work that way anymore. So I just don't like, I can't even go there. Yeah. I'm sitting here rambling now, Joe, <laughs> like what are your thoughts about all this shit? I'm saying. Oh, no, I, I get what you're saying. It, it, and I think it makes sense to, to a large, you know, to a large degree. And, you know, and there's, there's, of course there are people, you know, there are certainly people who would be like, well, you know, 
how can you even say this? You know, he obviously did, you know, and it's like, yeah, that's, you know, it's all okay. You know, that's, it's all true. But, you know, like you said, it's, it's, it's also tough when you enjoy looking back at the history of, of cinema and, and Hollywood and, and because man, it is dotted with all kinds of, you know, bad behavior. You know, that's, there's, you know, there's, you know, like you said, the, the phenomenon of, of dating underage girls and that kind of stuff is, you know, a, is long established by so many. And there's so much, you know, there was so much in terms of um, even of keeping gay people down, you yep. know, and, yep. and, you know, painting them as, you know, perverse and, you know, something wrong with them and blacklisting them. And, you know, there's just all this stuff. And it's, it's just difficult, I think, at times for, for certain people. And I, you know, I think it's the, and I think it's those people like Woody Allen who have something, it's, have something really high profile, you know, like you can, you can read, there's something about reading an article and it's like, oh, hey, you know, excuse me. Stop yawning, Joe. (laughs) Sorry. I'm just, I'm just a little wiped at the moment. It's that two o'clock feeling, you know, um, but, um, you know, there's, there's certain people that, you know, you can read something. Oh, well, you know, he did something, you know, in 1948 that was bad, you know, and, and, it's, and you're just reading something, right? And then you can just put it out of your mind and forget it. But when it's in the news, like, you know, the Woody Allen case, like the, the Cosby case, like, you know, some of these others, then it gets more difficult because now there's public pressure. You know, other people are saying, well, we're not going to pay attention to that guy anymore. We're not going to let that guy be a star anymore. We're not going to let that guy, you know, make movies anymore. So, it, you know, it, there becomes kind of a, that mentality, you know, the, this mentality of this person has to be, has to go away. And, you know, and, and like you said, that's, that's not unreasonable, I think, in a lot of cases. A lot of these cases are, you know, are like that. But, but what happens to their stuff that, is that is out there that it has been you know that has been um beloved and you know studied you know and as you said studied in in film classes and that kind of stuff do we stop doing that do we do it and have a disclaimer do we just talk about it as if there's nothing you know nothing ever happened i don't know Uh, and i you know i would i would tend to disagree with just pretending nothing ever happened if it was something you know, that's kind of a monumental, you know, that's a monumental kind of, um, you know, news story, like Polanski. A, an ongoing news story. Yeah. You know, I, I think certainly in those cases, it's really tough to, to just ignore it. But, you know, do you continue studying it? You know, do you, con- do you continue thinking of it as being something that's legit and is worth watching and is terrific and it's, it's just a tough question to answer, yeah. you know, and, and different people will have those different answers and, and you have to kind of, in a sense, you have to kind of respect all of them. And I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I mean, I he, yeah, <laughs> it's, there, it's tricky. You know, I, I brought up Lenny Riefenstahl uh, in, yeah. in this segment and, you know, she made Nazi propaganda, but she was also like one of the leading like progressors of the art of film, you know, um, and same thing with D.W. Griffith, who made Birth of a Nation in 1915, just an incredibly racist film uh, yes. supporting the KKK agenda and, um, 
you know, essentially having blackface, you know, that's <laughs> like the lead black guy yeah. is like a white guy. <laughs> and so there's just like so many problems, but it's like that film was the first narrative full feature, like mm-hmm. the first full fe- and it's like four hours long or something. It's so long. How was that yeah. the first thing? I just can't even believe it. But, yeah. you know, th- these these things, thinking of history, it is a lot um, easier pill to swallow, right, of, of looking yeah. at these. And to be honest, I think, uh, you know, even watching something like Annie Hall is almost easier pill, an easier pill for me to swallow than me watching Rifkin's Festival, which was Alan's film from last year. There's like, even yeah. for me, like, there's a historical difference there. There are many years. This would have been long before Dylan Farrow. That does not justify it, but I'm I'm just saying I'm just giving you kind of my my brainwave here, right? The flow of information in my brain. Yeah. How I navigate that in my head. I just I don't think about it, but if I do, it's like I feel like there's there's a difference there. And my question to you before we move on is because yeah. we've been talking way longer than I thought. Um, <laughs> but my question to you is like, what happens when someone dies? Do you think there's a difference? Because I think one of the biggest issues people have is not only just like a moral issue of watching a piece mm-hmm. of art, uh, but also just like they don't want to support this person financially, which is the whole thing with capitalism, right? If Alan's movies were to make mon- money, they'd put more money into this person, right? Yeah. Because yeah. again, to look at this objectively, I'm a Dylan Farrow supporter, but uh-huh. this is factually, when it comes to evidence, he said, she said which means a studio very well could hire Woody Allen because he is not a convicted criminal of this of this thing, okay? Now, again, I hate that, okay? <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not supporting that. I'm just saying objectively, this yeah, is yeah. where the evidence is. So he can. that's why he's still making movies. Now, there, there, right. there have been protests in France and different places to keep his movies out of the cinemas. I mean, since Dylan Farrow came out, there have been a lot of, a lot of backlash on Woody Allen, of course, and a lot stronger than it's ever been. Um, but like, yeah, you know, to me, it's like when someone dies, if you're trying to see film as the art form it's been, not just as entertainment, but someone's studying, do you think it's easier when someone's dead? It's, I, I don't know. Yeah, probably. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, death tends to, make you know little changes I, I think when someone dies they're they're real fans they're apologists even if you want to call them that I think they are cemented a little more like you know they they're they crystallize a little bit more in their opinion and they're probably more likely to then go back and be like you know what I'm just gonna watch this and I'm gonna enjoy it and you don't have to you know at that point it's like we can you know they're gone all the judgment can be gone with them I don't, I don't know that I necessarily think it, that's a good thing that, that, you know, that, that changes, you know, that would change what I think um, maybe in some circumstances, but. Uh, I don't think it should nullify anything. I want that to yeah, be clear because yeah. the way you're yeah, going, I yeah. don't want you to think I believe yeah. that. So. Yeah, no, yeah, no, not at all. Yeah. And, and yeah. And what, yeah. And what, what I'm trying to say is that, you know, those people who, who maybe were conflicted, you know, during this, maybe had previously really liked, let's say Woody Allen. And, you know, they, they were like, well, I really like him, but I'm going to not watch these films, you know, and then he, and then he passes away and then you go, well, maybe I'll watch something and just, 
you know, and the next thing you know, you're back in it, you know, it, but uh, you know, those, those people, it kind of, I think things kind of crystallize for them and it, and it changes for them um, and, and maybe makes it easier for them to go back if they wanted to go back. So um, I, I just think that's, you know, I just think it's part of human nature and, you know, some people are big into let's forgive and forget. And some people are real big into, you know, just shut up and sing your song and other people are, you know, that that's been the, the mantra of, you know, in the music industry, right. You know, just shut just up and sing your song. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's been a thing for many an artist who, you know, is controversial even for a reason, you know, one reason or another, not, not even necessarily as something criminal, but you know, someone like the Dixie chicks, you know, who, yeah. who, you know, who wow. got, you know, roasted by their fan base because they were unhappy with they them. were They were quote unquote canceled. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, exactly right. And, uh, you know, and that kind of stuff, you know, that that's obviously much different. That's obviously a much different situation than someone who is, you know, but I'm, I'm just saying that I think the way that humans in their mind approach it, there's probably some similarities there. Um, you know, when, when you're discussing whether or not you, you want to just push this person away. So I don't know, there, there's a lot of things. It's, there's a lot of things to, to play with there. There's a lot of things at stake and it's, it's, I think it tends to be a more personal decision than, sure. than any, in a case like that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, as I said in the earlier segment, I, I agree. I think it really just comes down to why are you watching film? Uh, I mean, yeah. the, the real reason I wanted to address this before we talked about any, any hall is for two reasons, because of the Alan V. Farrow docuseries that came out. I wanted to make sure people understood my stance and our stance um, sure. personally, you know, uh, related to this before we hop into this, because we will be dealing with, I'm sure Polanski film is going to come up at some point, either the pianist or Chinatown or Rosemary's yeah. babe. I mean, we're going to, we're going to run into something. Um, yeah, and, and, you know, Chaplin and all, there are a lot of problematic figures and I, I want to keep talking to you about this. I'm not going to, but I want to ask you about Crispin was so bad. Maybe we can talk about that after <laughs> we hang up. Um, yeah. but anyways, um, yeah, it's uh, I wanted to address it so that people understood kind of the the framework that we the lens we're we're coming through or I don't know how to say those right. words, but um, and also just to kind of challenge anybody who might be listening to this that doesn't just watch movies solely for entertainment, but that is someone who is like a cinephile who's really wanting to. Uh, loves the trivia, loves finding out about the history and watching things within their history. You know, someone that can watch something like The Birth of a Nation and understand, you know, the perks of seeing that film despite its terrible, abhorrent message. And so, right. um, you know, to those people, I just say, like, do the work. Like, I feel like in order to fully understand it, you know, since we're about to get into Annie Hall here, like, just reading about Annie Hall... Some movies, I think you could just do that. Like you could just kind of read about its importance. But Annie Hall is one of those ones I feel like you have to experience. And I might be a little biased here. Um, but the movie we're talking about today, though, uh, following that up is Annie Hall. I'll just jump into it. Written and directed yep. by uh, the now infamous Woody Allen. Uh, starring the full cast, actually. It's not even just starring. I'm just going to name a whole list of people here. Cast, Woody Allen, Diane Keaton, Carol Kane, Paul Simon, Shelley Duvall, and a small, small role uh, for young Christopher Walken. There's also, yeah. of course, um, 
Jeff Goldblum's in it and a cameo. Um, I'll get into where these people are, but Truman Capote's in it. Uh, Sigourney Weaver had her on-screen debut in this film. If you don't know where, I'll tell you where in a moment. Um, yeah, so uh, a lot of people... Good. I did notice Beverly D'Angelo. Yeah. Too. Yeah. In a very small like, I barely caught her, but I I saw her. Yep. Yeah. Marshall McLuhan. He actually had Marshall McLuhan come in on on the end joke when he's in the theater, uh, you know, yeah. trying to, breaking the fourth wall and trying to yes. wish fulfillment of destroying this academic behind him. Um, yeah. The release date was April twentieth, nineteen seventy seven. A budget four million dollars. Box office thirty eight point three million dollars. Guys, I don't think you understand. For the 70s, this is outrageous. That is yeah. an outrageous bump. Okay, yeah. enormous hit. Uh, the film follows Alvy Singer, a divorced Jewish comedian played by Alan, who reflects on his relationships with ex-lover Annie Hall, an aspiring nightclub singer played by Keaton. Their relationship ended abruptly like Alvy's previous marriages, and the film uses a variety of creative storytelling techniques like subtitles for subtext, narration of inner monologue, uh, clever anecdotes with double meanings, breaking the fourth wall, cartoon sequences, split screens, etc. I mean, it just runs the gamut with, with its creativity here. It won four of the top Oscars in 1978, including Best Picture, beating the blockbuster titan Star Wars. Can you believe that? I just feel like people don't know this. I think I mentioned this in my earlier segment, but Annie Hall is about relationships from the perspective of Alvy, a flawed character. That's key. You have a flawed narrator, okay? And uh, the film gets deeper into the truths of romance and long-term partnerships, revealing really honest depictions of how love can go, even if it's told through a comedic lens. Now, Joe, there's a moment at the end of the film where Alvy narrates this story. It reminds me of this old joke, you know, a guy walks into a psychiatrist's office and says, hey, doc, my brother's crazy. He thinks he's a chicken. Then the doc says, well, why don't you turn him in? And the guy says, I would, but I need the eggs. I guess that's just how I feel about relationships. They're totally crazy, irrational and absurd, but we keep going through it because we need the eggs. I just got yeah. chills. This is a pivotal moment. This is the moment, actually going back to what I put a pin in earlier that got me through relationships that made me say when my friend said, man, are you ever going to get remarried after my first divorce? And I wanted to say no, because I was so bitter and hurt by the experience and seeing that line, It just makes me emotional actually hearing that line. Cause it's just such a throwaway, stupid, like it sounds like something a comedian from the fifties would say or something like, it's just so lame, but the context in the film, coming at the end of everything we've seen, following yeah. the montage of shots between him and Annie throughout the whole film, and then you get this little kind of anecdotal double meaning thing. Yeah. Wow. How, I mean, just like if there's no other reason to separate the art from the artist, it's yeah. to watch the movie just for that line. But Joe, yeah. do you think Annie Hall is worth separating the art from the artist, or is this one just a pass for you? I no, I think it is. Um, it's, it's, it would be, it would be something else if we were making movies like this today, that that can really dig in, that really dig into relationships. This movie had a whole lot to say about relationships, and it's not, 
it's not simply that he's having trouble with relationships. Yeah. You know, he, as you said, is, is a flawed character and he very often just complete, like he's very often, like you can just see he's, he would be almost impossible to live with. You know, he's, oh, he's extremely neurotic. Yeah. He, you know, he's, he's unreasonable. He's really self-centered at times. He, he, there's all these things. There, there's a moment. Um, and, and I don't know, maybe we're getting way ahead of my, ourselves, but there's Go a ahead. moment where, you know, Annie, you know, that has just done a, um, uh, like a, a, um, an audition or something for, she's just yeah. saying a song and, you know, and the, the Paul Simon character comes up to her and he's like, yeah, have you considered, you know, what, like, what label are you on? And she's like, oh, I, I don't have a, a record, you know, contract. And he's like, well, I do record contracts and, you know, I want to talk to you about this. And he invites her, her and, and Albie back to this party now, you know, like, it's hard to know exactly what this party is, you know, like exactly what it is he's inviting them to maybe if you're, you know, especially if you're a little cynical, but it feels like a legitimate opportunity for her to be like to start a recording career, to become yeah. a star, right. To become, and, and Alvi just summarily is like, no, we had the thing, you know, the thing we had where, yeah, we can't. Do, and he's just like, yeah, I just don't want to go, you know? And it's like this, this one moment, he doesn't feel like going he's potentially sabotaging her career you know like he's before it even starts like it, he should be seeing this and instead of seeing this he's just like ah eh, you know i just kind of don't feel i just, i can't do it tonight and you know yeah. that i get blown and it's everything is about him and everything's about you know what what is best for him and that's almost unbearable at times you know and it's uh you know and it's something that he's well aware of too you know that it's something that as the movie goes along he talks about it well, constantly i was going to bring this up real quick to make your point uh when he's with carol kane and she yeah. wants to have sex she's yes. begging him for attention literally like i need yeah. your attention alvi she's in her underwear and like a wife beater tank top thing yeah. she's ready to fuck okay like that's where right. we are and he's obsessed with the JFK assassination. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> I'm exactly like laughing right. out loud because it's so funny to me because it's very much his personality comedy character, but we'll talk about that yeah. in a moment. But like at one point she said, I think you're using this basically to avoid me. And there's right. a moment where he breaks the fourth wall and looks at the camera and he's just like, oh my God, I think she's right. Like those moments yeah. of reality are what make his unbearably selfish, neurotic character. Because I agree, he's almost unbearable at how selfish and assholey yeah. he is, right? But it's those yeah. moments of realization that make me make it 100% tolerable for me. Because he's just a character. And deep down, he's smart enough to know what he's doing. But in these moments, like millions of people in the United States alone, who yeah, yeah. don't know when they're being an asshole until they're confronted. Right. You know what I mean? Like these are truths oh, yeah. that are, yeah. you know, of course painted in, you know, in a, in a comedic portrait basically, but yeah. there's a truth there. So just to make your point, I'm kind of backing that up. Yeah. 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 yeah no. Yeah. And that, and that's perfect. You know, and, and you know, speaking as someone who's been that asshole a few times, you know, it's, I've never, yeah. but no, I'm just yeah, kidding. It's, it's, yeah, it's really, it's really difficult to um, 
to, to recognize that in yourself. Yeah. And that, that, you know, that's a big nugget of truth and, and something that as I've been through, you know, you know, my relationships and, you know, the, the ones that, the, the one, the, the big one that failed for me, yeah, was, was things that I didn't even realize, you know, and then you come back later on and you're like, well, yeah, I was probably pretty bad right there. I was probably pretty terrible. And again, this is something that your, you know, your average movie these days doesn't address. So, you know, to go back to that larger picture, that larger question of, is this movie worth, you know, that, that separation of the art versus the artist, that's what, that's what makes this such a rare movie is that they just, there aren't a ton of movies that really examine this in, you know, not even in the, the original way that this does, you know, the, the, the comedy of it and the, the, the comedy that kind of makes that bearable, but the, just the, the truths that, that go, you know, that, that work through this movie are not really, maybe something like Marriage Story that was, you know, that was oh. out, what, two years ago is something similar dude if you if you yeah but hold on though because the thing is i think annie hall is seen Mm. in every decade uh if you watch this and then watch when harry met sally these movies are almost identical except with a happy ending versus and kind of an anti-love story that that annie hall is because spoiler alert they end up just friends and that's fine I don't think that's like really even a spoiler. That's kind of the whole point of them. The very yeah. opening of the film, Alvy says, so Annie and I broke up, you know, like, like that's like the first thing he says, you know, but anyways, yeah. um, and how great's that opening to him in front of a brown wall, just ripping into yeah. this monologue. But anyways, okay. Uh, but um, 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 what did you just say? My <laughs> wife's vacuuming. I just got really distracted. Sorry. Sorry if you guys can hear a vacuum, but. I, I made a comparison to marriage story. Thank you. Um, so, yeah. so uh, when Harry met Sally uh, is uh, uh, clearly inspired by clearly not the same, but you can't like, I don't think it would exist without Annie Hall. Uh, high fidelity. Watch that shit now and see if you don't see Annie Hall literally throughout the entire film, especially since he's looking back at his top five relationships and they're almost identical to the way that Alvi looks back on his relationships, except for in an updated '90s lens, right? Like you're seeing, it feels different, but it's the same concept. Um, Five Hundred Days of Summer is another great example. There's actually literally a scene. I don't remember if they use subtitles or not, but the scene where Alvi is talking to uh, Annie on the on like the uh, like sky fucking patio yeah. thing or what, like the roof. And yes. um, they're they're saying this kind of bullshit while you can read subtitles, you know, yes. uh, of their subtext, basically. And like that is in 500 Days of Summer. I, I feel in Marriage Story, everything Noah Baumbach has done is yeah. influenced by Woody Allen, period. Uh, sure. you, you can see you can see Annie Hall and even in some like Wes Anderson stuff, of course, his style is so intense that it's very easy to mask but my, my point in bringing this up is just to again further your point like to find truth in these films because i think all those ones i mentioned especially stuff like high fidelity and marriage story which you brought up great examples uh yeah are like heavily influenced by this but also like able to also in the vein of annie hall get to these deeper issues 
Um, please continue. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just yeah. wanted to like yeah, no, give no. you some more examples. Yeah, no, no. I, I, I think I, I think I've reached the end there. <laughs> I think, um, yeah, it's it's just um, yeah, it, it's just you know all of those things, all of those truths about relationships, and and you know, and as you said, it it does this stuff in in such a a different way from most other films. You know, you mentioned breaking the fourth wall, and you know, there's a lot of just i don't know the the dialogue is really smart and yeah you know the dialogue just goes and goes and it's it's rapid fire and it's all it's not even like the, a lot of movies will have really great dialogue but it's not necessarily in service of the story at times it's just good dialogue that's there because it's fun or it's interesting it doesn't but this every line felt tied directly to, to what this film was about. And this notion of relationships and this notion of being bad at them, I guess, um, they, they all just kind of run into that. And it, it's, it's great writing too. So, um, so yeah, it's, that's, I, I don't know that that's kind of the end of my, of my yeah. comment there. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's okay. Um, yeah, that's, that's really great. Um, I love the the dialogue and the performances because they feel almost like there's like a self-indulgence to them. And I mean that actually in a positive way. There's almost like yeah. this, oh man, it all it all feels so staged because mm-hmm. it's in Alvi's mind. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like like yeah. it's yeah. it's all very staged around his perspective. And um, you know, as seen through whether it be uh the scene where they're waiting to go see the sorrow and the pity. And there's that guy, the Marshall McLuhan scene, basically. Yeah. Um, or, I mean, just a, a whole plethora of scenes that, that you can find throughout the film um, yeah. that really kind of convey that. But it, it almost makes it timeless to me, too. Because when you first, whenever Alvy first meets Annie, and you don't see this until, like, after the third act, or the first act, basically, you know, about a half an hour in or so, but where it goes back and shows how they first met at the tennis court. Yeah. And... And how awkward Diane Keaton is. Now, maybe yeah, that was a yeah. genuine performance, right? But to me, it almost feels intentional. You know, yeah. like it was meant to be, because that's how Alvi remembers her as being this like unbearably awkward la-di-da person, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and so it's like, regardless of whether these were authentic performances or they were intentionally done to be this way in some weird like Kubrickian perfectionist way, um, sure. It feels timeless to me in that way. Just the whole look of the film, the Shelley Duvall sequences. I mean, you know, and then like, I don't know, you don't get a lot of cunnilingus jokes. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> where where Shelley Duvall's like, sorry, it took me so long, you know, to get there. And he's just rubbing his jaw. <laughs> yeah. It's just yeah, so he, good. He makes a comment about it. Too. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and the thing is, um, you know, this real there's just a lot of truths. Again, a lot of them are through comedic lens, but one of the truths I love, and I was gonna bring this up when you were kind of talking about it, is there's also this great little anecdote, again, that has a much stronger meaning because of the context is yeah. a relationship I this is Alvi saying this on the plane a relationship I think is like a shark you know it has uh, it has to constantly move forward or it dies and I think what we have on our hands is a dead shark right yeah. like what like how do you write that I just don't right. even understand because it's just such I've used that to help people through relationship breakups like you know, yeah. like I've talked 
I remember specifically talking to two of my closest friends, actually, when they were going through breakups, and I read that quote to them, you know, because they were like, or they weren't going through breakups yet, but they're like, man, I feel like I need to, like, get out of this. It feels toxic to me now. This is what's going on. That's the quote I read every time. And it's not to encourage them to leave, but it's like, hey, sometimes you just have a dead shark, and that's okay. That's okay. You know, like, I don't know, man. There's just... This film like just fucking changed my life. I want to tell you a couple things, um, and then we can touch on a few, a few more, and then be done. That's fine. I, I wanted to yeah. tell you though where Truman Capote and Sigourney Weaver are, real quick, just to yeah, kind of completely yeah. break up our conversation. Um, sure. So you know, whenever they're sitting in the park, Alvy and Annie, they're sitting in the park and they're calling out people, saying like, yes. you know, this person looks like they're blah blah blah, and they're like telling stories and having a great time. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, winner of the Truman Capote lookalike contest. That's Truman Capote. <laughs> yeah, they yeah. actually. Have I, I assumed when you said that, I was like, I bet. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I was like, it must have been. Yeah. I didn't know this till today, though. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so at the toward the end, whenever he's wrapping up, before he gets to the chicken and we need the eggs thing, and um, before the yeah. little montage of him and, and Annie, he talks about you know. You know, since the last time I saw her, I've seen her around town. Uh, you know, he took it as a personal triumph to see her leaving the sorrow and the pity, you know, with her new partner. And Woody Allen standing there with his new partner, which is Sigourney Weaver. There's no <laughs> line. It's just her standing there. And she's like a whole head yeah. taller than him. Um, yeah. But yeah, so that's because I, I actually looked at that. I was like, who is that? It like looked fam- she looked familiar to me, but I couldn't figure it yeah. out until I saw that or I've did some research, found that out. So that's yeah. fantastic. Um, and I, I want to touch on this. Uh, I, I talked about this. I don't remember what we were covering when I did this, but personality comedy. Uh, personality comedy is like a genre largely. I don't know if he created it or if he's just really propelled it forward. Um, Wes Gehring, which is a friend of uh, Matthew Sosie and I's. We, we uh, know him from Ball State. And uh, he's just a great comedy mind. He mostly focuses on comedy from the 1920s and 1950s is like his kind of primary focus. But he talks about personality comedy. So so Charlie Chaplin had The Tramp, right? And The Tramp was in multiple movies. Yeah. And he was that same character. That's like personality comedy. Steve Martin started off that way where, you know, he had in his stand-up, he was this completely wild and crazy guy, not to just blatantly use the Saturday Night Live thing, (laughs) but he was like the wild comedian, right? He would just do wild shit. And then he does, you know, the jerk, and he's doing like all these like wild movies where he is essentially his stand-up persona put into this character, you know, and so on. There there are a lot of people that did that. Um, uh, Not Arthur Brooks. What's the dude's name? Um, Albert Brooks is another guy. They call him the West Coast Woody Allen. Um, He's the same thing. He kind of ha- he's the same character almost in like every movie, but that's his persona. Um, this is this is the neurotic hypochondriac obsessor of death, Woody Allen, right? This is his yeah. kind of personality that he's in in pretty much every film I've ever seen him in. He plays this character um, to like slight variations. So you know this fits really well into the personality com- comedy genre. If you're interested in learning about that, you can certainly go. Uh, Google that some more. I also just love all of the observational humor. Like that's pretty much what the whole thing is, right? Like you know, he's just constantly seeing something and riffing on it, and but he's also adding truth. I think that's the key to the writing. Like what you were talking about, he'll find an everyday thing, you know, that mm-hmm. happens, and he'll tie yeah. it in to kind of the crux of the film, 
like what the film is doing. Even whenever he, uh, whenever they're going to see uh, the Bergman movie, I think it's face to face or whatever, and they're two yeah. minutes late, right? But before they get up to the line, uh, Annie's just in a bad mood, and he's like, "I think you must be getting your period, right?" This but, is something yeah. to get your fucking face slapped now. Like this, you yeah. know what I mean? Like this is such a shitty thing. And then it was shitty too. Like she, right? Absolutely. She yeah. gets at him for it, right? Um, right? But it's like that line is a line I guarantee Woody Allen has heard other guys talk about. Maybe himself. Yeah. You know, he puts it in there because this is thing. This is a thing someone would say, and this is a thing this character would say, and it's put yeah. in there. But it all ultimately ties into the distance, the wedge that is being put in between this relationship that ultimately causes her to go with uh, Paul Simon to California. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like, it's just, again, one of those kind of perfectly written things. Uh, Not just the period thing, but just like everything about it, man. And then what other movie outside of like Kill Bill and like Run Lola Run or something just has like like a cartoon sequence in the middle of it. Like how yeah. just how great is that? There's just so many weird things. Like his buddy who loves California but lives in New York. For some reason, I'm spacing his name and I don't want to spend the time to go find him. But as I'm talking to you, I'm looking for him now. Um, I don't know. I'm not going to find him. Anyways, uh, but his <laughs> friend that that gets him hooked up with Annie in the first place because of tennis. Yeah. He puts on that like. It looks like a like he's. I mean, the joke that Woody Allen makes because he's about to drive and he doesn't want to get his skin sun, so he puts this thing that looks like he's has like a hazmat suit on or something. And Woody Allen's Alvy makes the joke about what are we doing driving through plutonium, and then he has like an ad libbed line where he goes, uh, you know, something about like it's for the skin, Max. It's for the skin. Something something (laughs) like that, you know. Uh, I don't know, man. I. I'm kind of just rambling because there's just there are so many people in this. It's so good. Every every single aspect of the production, um, you know, the the dead shark line comes yeah. after they're all having inner monologue narration where each of them are thinking about how they're unhappy. Like yeah. how many yeah. times, Joe? And I'm not trying to out you. Literally, you don't have to answer this. This is a rhetorical question. But like, how many times have you sat with a partner that you are now no longer with and thought this is not going to work? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like, yeah. I, I don't know anyone who hasn't had that experience or had that experience done to them, right? Like, even yeah. if they didn't have that when they broke up, the other person was doing that. There's like an inner monologue yeah. happening. Same uh-huh. thing with the subtitles uh, at the beginning when they first meet, where they're talking and. You know, Annie's talking about, you know, doing going to some art show or something, but the subtitle says like, Man, do you think he thinks I'm annoying? You know, like you're uh, you're you're getting their inner thoughts while they're talking about these kind of mundane things. How yes. I mean, you've done that. I have too. Absolutely. Like Absolutely. I think yeah. about like, do I talk too much all the time? Yeah. I was yeah. talking oh, yeah. to one of my closest friends yesterday. We were talking about wrestling, actually. And I don't get to talk to anybody about wrestling anymore. Like yeah. no one the people I do get to talk to about it don't watch it, so it's harder to like get involved. And he he got me back into wrestling, so he's yeah. out of it a little bit now. But I'm trying to get him to watch AEW, and and so we were like talking about it, and I went on probably for half an hour at least, and I'm like I feel like self conscious because I feel like I'm talking too much, you know. And he's like, no, dude, like just go, like I want to hear about this, but it's like yeah. 
the inner monologue, dude. Like, that's so brilliant. Again, the cartoon sequences, the split screens. Um, there are two split screen screens. There are two split screen. <laughs> <laughs> Who's tired here? You're the one yawning through the whole thing, and I can't even I get know. words out. The split screen uh, sequences, there are two of them, one of which is when it shows Annie's family versus his family, which is great. Um, and they're communing communicating with each other through time and space, apparently, which is fantastic. And then um, the other one is whenever they're at the uh, psychiatrist, like at their uh, therapist, yeah. therapy appointments, which is actually just a set. It's actually not a split screen. It was actually two sets uh, built right next to each other. But um, like it is the split screen effect, basically, you know, uh, and that is uh, what a great scene also, because again, going back to, you know, how, how many times do you think that you have sex a week? And she's like, yeah. I don't know, like too much, like two or three times yeah. a week. And he's it's like, like not week, enough. Yeah. <laughs> like only two yeah, or three, yeah. like, you know, ever, three times a week. Yeah. yeah. So it's, you know, it, again, regardless of whether you have ever had that exact conversation in your mind or with friends, you've had that thing. Like, yeah, we never, we never hang out just the two of us. Maybe we get one night. And then the other person might be like, yeah, I give him one night a week. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, it doesn't exactly have to right. be sexual. Just the idea of two people having different perspectives of a situation. I mean, I just feel like this, watching this movie, if you can get past Woody Allen's history, is like a therapy session. <laughs> like, if you actually will take in what he's dishing out, you can learn yeah. a whole lot about your life. I, I again fully understand that I'm talking way too much about this right now, um, but again, this is my number two favorite film ever. So yeah. it's not no surprise that I am talking so right. much. My favorite comedy of all time, this movie. Uh, I consider it a romantic comedy, um, sure. even though it's an anti love story. But it is uh, the idea of romantic comedies being that romance is the focus of the film. That's like the definition of the genre. And this is clearly about romance, whether they end up together or not. So it's my favorite yes. romantic comedy. If you're looking for happy ending stories, The Apartment, as I've said before, is. But this one is the one I brought up when we talked about that as the one that would trump that. Uh, uh, par yeah. Pardon the term. Um, because fuck Trump. Anyways, so <laughs> uh, just immediately sent away like uh, it, uh, probably no one who supported Trump is listening anyway, so it's fine. Uh, so what's something um, what's something that you could leave off uh, with Annie Hall here? I, we didn't really get super into it because we talked about the art versus the artist, which I think honestly was the more important thing I wanted to kind of get off my chest with this. Um, I've talked a lot about the things I, I can't encourage people enough to go check this out if they feel comfortable doing so, because, uh, not only is it an important film in history, but if you can really get down into what the film is trying to say and really like take it to heart, what's, what's happening, I think you'll find something to relate to. Um, you know, maybe if you've went through something like this, it'll make you sad and just remember being sad is okay. You know, sometimes yeah. that can be kind of a healing emotion, to be honest, um, yeah. uh, this is a movie that I've watched through breakups, like I've told you, and some oh. people would find that sad, you know, but I, I'm not one to escape my sadness. I often go head first into it and try to deal with it. And this is a movie that's helped me. Um, I mean, you know, I love this movie so much, even if Woody Allen is crazy, irrational and absurd, but I just need the eggs, Joe. I just yeah, need the exactly eggs. Right. 
what what are some final thoughts that you might have on any hall what are some other notes if you have any what are some other things you liked you can go any direction i'm going to kind of give the floor to you finish us out sure yeah yeah i want i want to do just a couple things and i and i want to be careful not to you know jump down another rabbit hole but the um looking at this film you know from a larger perspective in a you know about halfway in i thought this movie feels like it's one of those movies that's really heavily ad-libbed, but I'm pretty sure it's not. I'm pretty sure maybe maybe Woody Allen has some ad-libs here and there, but I feel like it's a it's very meticulously scripted. It is, and it's and it's a it's kind of a testament to the writing and to the acting, I guess as well, that it has that feel. It, and it's you know it's the, got that kind of lightning you know the lightning dialogue that just back banters back and forth. And it's people saying things that are really smart. Um, and that that's a really, that's, that's certainly a positive to this film is that it feels that way, but it also, you can, you can also tell that it's not, that it, you know, that's just, that's just writing. And, and that's a, that's a great thing about it, uh, about this film. Um, and I think, you know, the last thing I want to do is just end with a, um, um, the, a moment that, that I thought was funny that, and, and they actually address it, so it, it changes. But I thought it was really funny that, um, you know, when the, that scene, this, the Shelley Duvall scene, as you said, where, you know, um, Annie calls him and is like, I need you to come over here right <laughs> yeah. now. And, and then he gets there and she's like, there's a spider in the bathroom. And, you know, and he, he's like, just, you brought me over here at three in the morning for a spider. And, you know, he's like, well, don't you have Raid? And she's like, no. And he's like, well, get me a magazine. And she hands him a copy of the National Review. <laughs> which, which just <laughs> laugh before. So he he says something about it, right? Like he has to he has to see it and say something about it. I, I do almost think that moment would have been funnier if he wouldn't have said anything about it. Um, if he had just looked at it and like just stared at it for a second and then rolled it up and you know and went and yeah. you know did the thing. But it, it was really just, a, it's really a, a great little moment. And, um, you know, and it, and that, you know, was on the, the backs, the back of the guy that she was dating. Right. Because yeah. that, that's where he goes with this. What is, who is this guy you're dating? Is he some kind of, some kind of, you know, conservative, you know, such and such. And, um, I don't know that I, I actually just wrote that down because it, it cracked me up so much that, Dude, that that's what the magazine she comes up with. That scene. Thank you for bringing that up because what I what I've tried to avoid through this whole thing, knowing we were going to spend a large portion of it talking about the separating the art from the artist, is I was trying to avoid going through every fucking scene and right. busting a you with Point Break and just play by playing this shit because <laughs> yeah. I feel like I could say something about every th- every one. I'm glad you brought that up because ha- I don't know if you've ever had this, but I have had this uh-huh. almost exact situation happen with the, per- the wow. se- my second girlfriend, the one that I was engaged to, but we ended up calling it off. Uh, um after we called it off she would often call me because the other person she was dating after that um lived like far away like it was a long distance thing so we're trying to still be friends so she would often call me over to like do these random tasks like to help her do something you know but i found out later that she was struggling between because there was like an infidelity aspect, like she kind of cheated on me, like this whole thing. It doesn't matter, but that context is important to think of. Like she was 
she felt terrible about it. She didn't want to be with this person anymore. She wanted to be with me, but she like she couldn't just bring that up to me because she hurt me. You know what I mean? Like it was this really complex situation, and yeah. like I'll never forget. She would like call me over and do these things, and at one time she just like broke down crying, uh, yeah. exactly like Annie does, right? And she's just mm-hmm. like, I just. Like basically, she admitted like the, uh, most of these things are just excuses so we can hang out because like I miss yeah. you kind of a thing, right? And it's just yeah. like like whether that's happened to you or not, I'm telling you it's happened to me. Like that's true, you know. Yeah. It's like and and I would be no better than Woody Allen fighting that spider. I would yeah. be. <laughs> I would yeah. be no better. I'd be swinging for the fences. I mean, it, my household is a catch and release household here uh-huh. um but if i had to swat this thing um right. you know i was always a back in the day when i would murder them i would use a, a fly swatter because i could stay yeah. away from it <laughs> i hate yeah. bugs touching me that's like my biggest thing right. so anyways yeah. um i don't know man like i find so much truth in that as well um yeah. there was another scene i wanted to say before we close here and i'm trying to remember exactly which one because again which one do you talk like there are just so many right. Uh, so many really great ones, but uh, that scene's really great. I also love the scene where he first meets Carol Kane as the, uh, she, you know, she's kind of uh, not producing, but kind of delegating things at this yeah. uh, at this big show, and uh, Alvy's about to go on, and he's upset because there's a comic on right now, and he has to follow him. Yeah, and uh, Carol Kane's talking to him, and he goes through this whole long explanation of what her family must be like and all these things and uh she basically says i love when people reduce me to you know social stereotypes and then he goes he goes yeah i'm a bigot i know but at least i'm a bigot for the left (laughs) i i just love that line because a lot of people do consider like often look at bigots as like conservatives right and i love just that he makes that in the 70s, even, they're doing this. And yeah. then he has that great line. I love whenever you have comedians on TV, like on a, in a movie, and they're saying yeah. clearly really bad comedy, and everyone's mm-hmm. laughing. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, like um, yeah. And it's like very intentional. And I love his line about Eisenhower, because he's talking yeah. about like, yeah, I went on this date with this lady, and uh, you know, I realized that all I really wanted to do with her is exactly what Eisenhower's been doing to our country for the last four years. And he's talking about yeah. fucking, right? Uh, Eisenhower right. fucked the country. And I just love those little... just, But those are peppered throughout the whole thing. <laughs> you yeah, know? Like, it never stops. It never lets up. It's constantly... Oh, I remember the scene. So I can close with this one. Yeah. The scene... Another truth here. And if you've never seen this, if you're listening, you've never seen this, if you feel comfortable watching it, watch it. Because all these scenes we're telling you, it is all about context. Like, you really need to watch the movie in context. Because all the film is, is a retelling of relationships and essentially truths surfacing through this reexamination Alvy does of this relationship. There's really no more plot than that. I mean, it's you're just watching these scenes from their relationship and you're putting together this narrative and you're finding truths throughout. So to for me, I could tell you that we could play by play this and not ruin it. Like, I feel like you really do have to see it. It's not like you spoil anything, you know? So, sure. um, but there's a scene where Alvy and Annie are sitting or they're, they're trying to make lobster 
lobsters, right? And it's this, and I'd be the same way. (laughs) Like I would never, I would be that exact situation. And they, there are lobsters all over the ground. Like they've clearly just dropped them or left the crate open or whatever. And they're just lobsters everywhere. And they're freaking out. And I think he has like a tennis racket or something at one point. Like, I don't remember. Or a broom or something. Like, like, I don't know. It's just hectic. And Annie's just cracking up. And, and Alvy is like being completely anxious, but also laughing at times. And it really reminds me of many times I've had with people. But here, here, what I'm bringing up is the movie does multiple throwbacks to scenes that seem throwaway, that are funny and they're good, but then they are given meaning by a later scene that throws back to it. And this one is really important because after Alvy and Annie break up, he dates someone else and he tries to recreate that moment where he gets lobsters and he's being frantic and he's like hurry up get this thing and she's just cool as a cucumber this new lady and she's just like what 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 are you doing like and you know i don't know talks about smoking and she's like oh like when did you quit smoking he's like 16 years ago and she just doesn't get the joke uh which nor would the listeners based on what i just said but just watch it um but it's just dude that callback because he's not getting that experience again you know, and it just goes to show how much the relationship with Annie meant to him, um, yeah. as does the whole movie, you know. But, man, sure. the signature scene of throwbacks for me, and it's not so much a throwback. I wouldn't call it that, really. Uh, but it's just right before he does the brother thinks he's a chicken, we need the eggs thing. It does. It has Diane Keaton singing the nightclub music as yes. they cut between a variety of scenes that we've seen throughout the whole movie, good and bad, between Alvy and Annie. And yeah. that is like a photo reel of every relationship I've had. Like, that's what I do when I break up with someone. Like, I have to think of that, like, proverbial photo reel, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, so it's like, um, I don't know. I just, I, I guess... To sum up the movie, um, and and I didn't, we didn't even do it justice, really. Like in terms of talking about it, again, it's really, it's either a movie you're going to watch or not, uh, because of Woody Allen. Essentially, he is the lead, and he's in almost every scene. Uh, mm-hmm. So, like, if if you're going to have a problem seeing him, uh, this probably isn't for you, unfortunately. And yeah. if not, I would seriously read about this film, <laughs> like at the very right. least, just to learn, because you know, I. I of course, I'm biased because this is one of my all uh, just easy top ten material uh, for me, top three material, and uh, it's just better than all of the clones that came after it. You know, and I, dude, I love High Fidelity, and I love when Harry met Sally, and I love, dude, I adore Marriage Story. That was like yeah. probably my favorite film of that year. Granted, as you yeah. know, I didn't get through nearly as many movies as I wanted to that year, but still, um, from what I did see, loved it. And um, yeah, this is just great, man. I don't, I just don't even know what else to say. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's about all we have to say. <laughs> yeah, well, we, we yeah. are going to be talking about, um, we're going to be talking about some 
more films like this in the future at some point, especially as we continue kind of pulling from our individual favorites and revisiting them yeah. and kind of having these these new perspectives on them. Every time I see Annie Hall, I do get new things out of it. And um, I'm pretty sure, Joe, that next week, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. you and I are going to be talking about the MCU. <laughs> That's going to be fun. <laughs> are, you, are you excited or are you dreading I, this conversation? I, I, no, I'm excited about it. It's going to be, I think it's going to be fun. I do too. Um, yeah. I, I think it's gonna be a good time. And yeah. And, and just so you know, the uh, whole episode's dedicated to this. So we're not yeah. talking about just one film. We're kind right. of talking about the concept of the MCU and whether yeah. as a whole and the individual films, whether, you know, they are as successful as they want to be and why you like them, why I sure. like some of them, why I don't, you know, like all the things I really want to kind of, cause we're getting into blockbuster summer territory, right? Yes, summer blockbuster, absolutely. I guess I should have said, but so black widow yeah. comes out the following week, I believe, um, mm -hmm. you know, mortal Kombat, I believe comes out, yeah. <laughs> comes yeah. out next week. I don't know. I forget if it's, Exactly when that comes out. I think it's after that episode it's the, it's will air. The twenty sixth. The twenty sixth for Mortal Kombat. Yeah, isn't that the isn't that uh, hold on. So oh, okay. Very cool. I, yeah. I thought it was the twenty sixth, but I thought that was the date that this MCU episode will air, but it's the next day. Well hell, yeah. I might I might do a solo review for that. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um but anyways, so yeah, keep an eye. I'll see if I can actually fit that in on just having like a Monday. But if I can, I'll do a Mortal Kombat review too. Um, if not, maybe maybe we'll briefly talk about it the following week because that's one I feel like we have to talk about just because like you saw the original ones. I played the yeah. game, saw the original ones in theater, both of them. Um, sure. How my dad got my mom to let me go see the first one in theaters, I have no idea because my mom would <laughs> never have let me. I don't think she knew what Mortal Kombat was, I think was the problem. Um, yeah. But uh, anyways, uh, Joe, it was a pleasure talking to you about this, brother. Absolutely. It's likewise. Thank yeah. you very much. You want to leave us on a zinger? I don't have one. <laughs> I tried. I was just like, oh, I'm not up for it today. All right, man. See ya. <laughs>
And so, um, I don't know. I have like really strong feelings about this. And uh, like I said, if you watch movies sh for sheer entertainment, that's it. You don't really care about the the artistic aspects of it. Um, then, quite frankly, there's no reason for you to have to kind of put yourself through this unless you actually want to challenge yourself uh, with with um, you know how you feel about separating the art from the artist. I, I encourage everyone to challenge themselves with that. You know, even I think about these things sometimes, and and it can be trickier whenever someone like Woody Allen is is the the face of the film, is the main person. Um, uh, like in Annie Hall. Uh, Annie Hall, it didn't bother me at all, though, watching it, actually. It was very easy for me to see this film because the film means so much to me that I think it's easy for me to see kind of the personal aspects uh, that I get out of the film um, and see them as something completely different. Even whenever Woody Allen's staring me in the face, I see Alvy Singer because that is, like, Annie Hall is a very specific movie. There may be another movie where that doesn't happen of his, you know, where I do see Woody Allen. Maybe it would bother me. And you know what? It's okay to kind of have that that double standard of sorts, right? Um, every text is its own text, and some of them can earn seeing past the horrible artist. And, you know, maybe there are others that don't earn seeing past it. And that's kind of something that you would have to decide. And, and, and I strongly encourage you to find that in yourself. But, you know what? Regardless of whether you do or not, we're really happy that you listen to almost choked for no reason what just happened anyways we're really happy that you listened to this i hope you got something out of it um honestly um this was just like a really kind of cathartic episode for me because i have been a little anxious about tackling certain artists like roman polanski who made incredible films like like chinatown and the pianist and uh i mean they're just so many even f really fun kind of thrillers like frantic and uh, I mean, there are so many good movies that he made. Even after the whole thing came out, I saw movie like the the history, like his history with with uh, sexual assault and stuff. I mean, he made a movie in 2010 called The Ghost Rider, and it was one of the best films of that years of that year, hands down. You know, uh, and that was before I knew everything about him. You know, I watched that, and who knows, man? Maybe if I, you know, I, I already knew about him. I had seen The Most Wanted or whatever it's called. A documentary about him, uh, Roman Polanski, Most Wanted. I don't remember what it's called. But anyways, there's a documentary that kind of details his his uh, career, but also ties in all of those um, those allegations and, and, and uh, the things he was ultimately convicted for. So um, I remember watching that, and then I watched a movie that had, like, Kate Winslet and a great cast. They were a really great cast. Skeleton Crew. It was all, like, in an apartment. It's called Carnage. And I loved that movie, too. And I thought it was really great, and I was still able to appreciate that. But Roman Polanski's actually not in it, right? So even that was really helpful for me to be able to just enjoy it as a text or as a piece of art. Um, I don't know. It's just really, really tricky. And I think it really just comes down to personal convictions. But hey, I already tried to close once. I'm going to close now. Thank you guys so much for listening. We love you. Good night. Good luck. Take it easy. <laughs>